welcome to the International Bus Podcast. This is your co-host Tanya Falkner. And your co-host Robert Rogi. And today we have an amazing guest on our show. He's been in the industry for over 20 years, got tons of experience, and he's the founder of Argo Translation, Peter Argondiso. And we're going to be talking about mergers and acquisitions in the localization industry. That's great. So welcome, Peter. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I, I feel a lot of pressure now with that prelude of amazing. You've set the bar very high. I hope I don't disappoint. Uh, you will um... definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your story. How did you get into translation? You know, when did you decide to found Argo? What's been your path? Sure, sure. Uh, thanks again for in inviting me. And um, it wasn't exactly a straight line to translation. So my background is in HR management and finance. You know, after university, I was really hell bent on going into uh, the investment world. But uh, after spending some time, you know, with the job search, and as often happens to college graduates, you you sort of take a different path. And I ended up working for a medical device manufacturer as a translation coordinator, and really enjoyed the work. Developed a passion for it. And this was, oh gosh, 23 years ago. So as you can imagine, the technology was a lot different. The, the environment was a lot different. At that point, it was really dominated by a lot of smaller firms and there wasn't really a lot of technology. I mean, we were still doing, you know, flush left translation there, you know, there really, it was really a different time. And what I noticed as a buyer of translation, that there wasn't really a lot of respect for deadlines budgeting information came at a premium. You really couldn't get that sort of information from your providers. So being young and foolish, I um, quit my job and decided to start Argo Translation with no customers, <laughs> no employees. I was really all by myself. Shortly thereafter, uh, I was fortunate enough to find uh, our co-founder, Jackie Lucarelli, and we you know, really started to hum. I mean, we really started to get some clients and that's when we started to apply technology in different ways. So we were early adopters of uh, translation memory technology and really stressed getting information back to our clients. So we were providing monthly reports on translation memory utilization, and we were building this all into an access database, and that became our project management system. And fast forward, you know, we, we've now settled on sort of our technology stack, which is uh, WordBee, NetSuite, Salesforce and Box. So we've found a way to integrate all of those systems and we provide great data to our clients. And, you know, we're really thankful for the technology that we use. And, you know, one thing that hasn't changed from the our 23 year history is that we love solving problems. You know, we clients will come to us with difficult issues, difficult workflows, and we love applying technology in a creative way to, to make their life easier. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. We're very fortunate. Again, fast forward, we have a couple of offices now and I'm surrounded by great people, great translators. It's been really a journey. I'm looking forward to the next 23 years. Wow. So I have a question then. It seems to me like your first acquisition besides customers, since we're talking today about mergers and acquisitions, was your partner, Jackie. So can you tell us more about what you needed in a partner, why she was so important? Tell us more about your acquisition or your merger with Jackie Lucarelli. 
Well, it's funny you say that because that's actually my wife as well. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so it's on two levels. You know, it's interesting. We started to grow like gangbusters and, and I wish there was, you know, something that sounded super strategic to it. But really, in essence, what it ended up being is we started to grow. Mm-hmm. I was literally on my own in a uh, 400 square foot office on the north side of Milwaukee mm-hmm. and really was just trying to catch a tiger by the tail. And we were engaged and Jackie was living here in Chicago. I was living in Milwaukee and she had a sales background. And I very carefully asked you know, would you mind working with me as well? And thankfully we have not killed one another. Uh, We get along very well in the workplace, which is really a nice thing. I have a lot of friends that always say, my gosh, how can you do that? But we really don't know another reality. We've been together almost really as long as the business and uh, it's been a great partnership. And Jackie serves really an advisory role with our sales and marketing team now. Hmm. Cool, cool. Well, so it was very important. It was really important because I was doing production side stuff. She was doing, you know, sales and marketing. And, you know, then we slowly started to grow. One of the important things has been our relationships with the two universities in our area that have translation programs. That's UW-Milwaukee and also the University of Illinois. And we've been able to add great talent and project managers. So that was really sort of an important part of our history as well. Uh, those two relationships and getting, you know, wonderful talent from our project managers. Awesome. So for every trans perfect, there's an Argo. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, th- thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Super cool. Right. Make all sorts of jokes, but I'll stop. But yes, as a husband wife team and it actually went well. So we're, we're pleased with that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> has not been involved. So that's a good thing. That's cool. great. So Peter, You told us that you are in the process of looking for acquiring another company. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, that's been an interesting experience. You know, over our history, we've been approached multiple times by uh, some of the big names and, uh, of course, not interested in selling. Uh, We've been very passionate about staying independent. And at this point, you know, we've built out this wonderful system. Essentially, we have a really great infrastructure that allows us to process jobs very efficiently. And at this point, we really have, you know, just being very forthright, we, we really need to acquire more business and we have a great sales effort and that's going well, but you know, that growth only happens at a certain pace. So we really feel that it's an important time to acquire a firm. And it's been an interesting experience. Uh, you know, we, I, I get it. So, you know, in, in the type of size of companies that we're looking for, you get a lot of firms that sort of look like ours. They're either family businesses or, you know, started in earnest by maybe a freelance translator or someone who really wanted to do more with their role. And there's a lot of pride. So you get, you get some really interesting experiences. In other words, where someone, you know, a company might be worth X, but in the owner's eyes, it's worth X times four. So it's tough. I mean, we've seen some companies that have had some, you know, real problems, but still trying to get a huge premium. And that's the tough part because in our position, you know, we're looking for firms that are, say, you know, half a million to two million dollars, you know, somewhere in that range. And again, you've got some operators that have a lot of pride and, and aren't really looking at what the market will bear in terms of a cost. So it's been very challenging in that way to find a good target. Hmm. Does that make sense? 
yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and do they consider on their side? Do they consider these things to be like a merger, or do they consider it to be an acquisition? Like, do they see their future as being almost like your your new partner? And what what are you looking for, like personnel wise, in these companies? Like, what's the relationship you're hoping to have with them after you acquire them? Well, you know, really it's, it's, I guess they can take two shapes or two different forms. You know, we were recently looking at an acquisition that was more in our area and it was going to be sort of, that office was going to be folded into ours and we would have likely taken their employees. Usually, you know, the, the owner doesn't stick around and we're the companies that we've looked at for the most part are owners that are looking to retire or get out of the business. And what we would deem a good acquisition there, you know, might be some good talents to handle the customers that they have. So perhaps a project manager or maybe even a good salesperson or two. But the firms that we've been looking at haven't typically had a very strong sales effort. They've been more operations driven and had a few project managers. And for me, I think the ideal acquisition would be where we would pick up a list of strong clients where there's good relationships. I would hope that the culture would be similar, you know, one that's really attentive to detail and a strong focus on quality. And it it would, we're really more interested in more of an acquisition than a merger, but that's not to say that we wouldn't consider it. But, you know, the other form that it could take, you know, we've seen a couple companies where they were really more interested in just sort of selling their client list and doing a, a percentage on the top. And that's also, you know, another form where it would really be no assets, no personnel, it would be more of a customer list acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that makes it challenging is that our industry typically doesn't have customer bases where you have, say, a three-year contract. You know, you would look at a customer list of a translation services firm and say, oh, gosh, there's a bunch of contracts that they have. So it's a sort of a secure cash flow. Most of the business in our industry, while there might be agreements from year to year, there's really no strict contracts. So yeah. you're really taking a bit of a leap of faith when you, when you I think, purchase a, another company. It's, yeah, it's totally. Really, yeah. How do you evaluate that? I, I suppose you're trying to make strides towards evaluating the strength of those relationships. So what do you look for? Great question. So at least, and I, I don't know that I have the right answers, but here's the formula we've been using. We've been looking at the top 10 customer list, looking at what sort of percentage of business that represents. So in other words, if we were looking at a company and let's say that their number one customer represented 70% of business, in my mind, that becomes a deduction in terms of the value of the company because you you know a lot of risk is concentrated in one relationship. And one of the things that you don't know is in transition if that client is going to stick around. Whereas if we looked at a basket of clients that say, you know, the number one client was 8%, it was, you know, a very nice, diverse basket of clients. In my mind, that becomes a premium. Mm-hmm. We're also asking, because of course, in, in this due diligence frame as well, you really don't know the names of the clients. You know, they might be just labeled one through 10. So you can't really make too much of a judgment on in, in industry. We'll ask industry 
and tenure. In other words, how long have these clients been with you? So I think another thing that would be in favor of the owner trying to sell is that length of business. So if we look at that top 10 list and, you know, you're seeing 10 years, four years, six years, eight years, and you're seeing some length of relationship, in my mind, that also would be a positive. If those relationships are relatively new, in my mind, that would be a bit of a negative since there's not a strong relationship there. Hmm, mm-hmm. Fascinating. So yeah. who builds the list that you look at then? Like uh, someone else build a list for you, I presume. Or yeah, yeah, we have sort of a standard set of questions that I've been using that our management team came up with in terms of evaluating. And it'll always be, you know, looking at three years of income statements and balance sheet to sort of get an idea on the financial strength. We'll also look at that top 10 customer list and their concentration or percentage of the total sum of business. We also like to look at the length of tenure of key employees and and it's funny, we we ask questions. You know, one of the things that we want to see is that there's sort of an infrastructure, even if it's a smaller company, that it's not the owner who does like 80% of the work. And when we take that owner out, that they've built a business that is very, very dependent on the owner. You know, an, an interesting thing that I did personally for our group is I know that these were issues even within our own company. I, gosh, you know, going back from our first year of business, I was doing a fair amount of project management. It's been a good decade or probably 12 years or so that I haven't really managed projects. But one of my goals was to make myself less important to the business. And I I think that's a key goal for translation service firms, really any small business is as an owner, you don't want to be integral to the business. Of course, there's vision and there's, you know, certainly things that you bring to the table, but you don't want to be sort of a linchpin on day-to-day operations. And again, in my mind, if we're looking at a business and the owner does everything and is central to all of the key operations, that becomes a negative uh, Hmm. in terms of sort of the pluses and minuses of looking at a business. Peter, you said you were looking at key clients and also key employees. Like, where do you even start? I mean, do you approach the companies right beforehand? I mean, do they provide all the information or do you, you know, what's the process? What's the like step-by-step guide? Sure, sure. Another great question. Thank you. You know, we, we've really been experimenting a bit because again, we haven't had a successful acquisition yet. You know, we're, we're working hard at it. Our goal is to get very good at it. And my idea is that over the next five years, we'd like to do a few of these acquisitions. Uh, My goal would be to do three in five years, of course, unless we find, you know, a larger one that ends up, you know, getting us to where we need to be in our, in our goals. But what we've been doing is a couple of things. We're members of the ALC. So we've been putting the word out amongst my regional members that we're looking to buy. So we've had a few conversations that way. We've also reached out to some of our key vendors, also expressing the fact that we're interested in purchasing. So we've we had a conversation or two that way. I've also worked with a couple of brokers. One of the things that we're toying with now is doing some direct to company mailings and look for some firms that fit within the descriptions we were talking about, sort of that key target size and just uh, approaching them directly. We haven't done that yet, but that is on our short list. We hope to do that in the first quarter. Okay. So you really look for, you, like you had a list of companies that you think could fit 
you evaluate them and then you only reach out to them once you have your evaluations done. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You know, the, the last thing we want to do is you know, sort of spray because th this also takes a lot of time. I can see, you know, some of the larger firms, as they started acquiring, they started putting someone that that's all they did was merger and acquisition. I, I know we've been approached by a couple of those uh, folks that that's really their whole focus. And I can see why, because this takes a great amount of time. In other words, you're really trying to learn everything about a company and it's mainly by phone or, you know, go to meeting because you, you really have to have a level of comfort before you decide to bring people into your company, you know, bring people into your culture because the last thing you want it to do is compromise your main business, right? And, and I think of the energy we put into hiring new people and I think, oh my gosh, if we, you know, acquire a firm and we're adding three people in one fell swoop with little or little opportunity to sort of evaluate if those people fit, it is a, a big task because I think as equally as important as the financial strength, you have to look at the cultural strength of the company and are those people going to fit and the way that they talk to clients and the way that they handle customer service, is that going to fit? So it, it is very, it's a very challenging process. So again, the last thing I, I would want to do is work on 10 of these at one point. Like right mm -hmm. now, we have two of them, different companies that we're having conversations with. I hope that we're able to push at least one of those to the finish line and do the acquisition, but I'm not going to rush it. The, the, there's a certain minimum level of uh, acceptance that we have to reach. And if not, then we're going to keep looking. It kind of sounds like, uh, in a way, like you're looking for a needle in a haystack almost. It's it's not so easy because, you know, some of the criteria that you mentioned is, uh, you know, it's kind of paradoxically, you know, that's the way that most of the companies are, I think, in that, that size range. You know, a lot of them have the founder who's integral to the business or they have the one big customer and they sort of grew organically for a while and then sort of topped out, which explains why they don't have like a huge sales team. Yeah, it just it, it sounds like you like it's going to take a while to find the perfect fit. I think you're right. And I think we likely won't find the perfect fit. But, you know, what I look at is, you know, what are the things that we can fix very quickly? So mm. where we excel is, you know, we have this great background, this technology stack that I mentioned to you that really allows us to process jobs very quickly. You know, we're, we're fortunate at the size of our firm. We have four project managers and, and we did over 3,600 projects last year. And I know per capita, we have a really high number in terms of a, a benchmark against other firms. So that's something that we can very easily apply. In other words, one of the firms that we're looking at right now, the owner spends a great deal of time on invoicing and collections where that's something where we automate that whole thing. So right. in, in other words, when we complete a project at Argo, when it gets to final status in our TMS in, in WordBee, the project manager simply has to go to a script in our ERP system, our accounting system, and it generates an email with a hyperlink to where the files are located. And literally nanoseconds after that email is sent, the invoice is routed to whoever the client has deemed the person who gets the invoice. And it's stored safely in box in their archive. So that happens automatically. We haven't issued a paper invoice in over a decade. So invoicing for us is not mm -hmm. really, it's not an effort. Like nobody actually has to generate one. Mm -hmm. uh, when we create the estimate, it has a life in our system. So the estimate is converted to a sales order, is converted to an invoice. We don't do any double entry in our systems. Mm -hmm. So 
this specific opportunity that I'm talking about is a perfect one because their issues are revolved around process and administrative tasks. So this one looks pretty good in all honesty, you know, where it wouldn't be good is if the owner was actually managing projects and doing sales. And because then you're really looking at it saying, well, I have to add bodies anyway. So that salary doesn't become one of the add backs or it doesn't become one of the mm-hmm. efficiencies. So I guess I should have been a little more clear on that, that, yeah, you're right. This is a very difficult task, but there is a formula. You know, those that are struggling with some of the administrative tasks or the technology side of the business, you know, that, mm. that's a perfect fit for us. Wow. So would you say um, you're basically looking for companies that are, let's say, struggling or having a little bit of a hard time um, dealing with things that you're very advanced at? Yes, I, I think that would be a good characterization. You know, in other words, what we're looking for is they have a nice set of clients and they're good relationships. Maybe they haven't been able to grow it because of this lack of sales effort, which I know, you know, we can fill that part. And they've been bogged down a little bit in inefficiency because of double entry. And we see that a lot. I even see that with some of, um, you know, the agency owners that, that I know through relationships uh, over time through ATA or ALC is that, you know, they struggle with that whole project management aspect, you know, how do we get the information from our estimates into our billing system? And how do we source that information back to our clients? You know, we have that mapped out that all occurs automatically on our side. Like we're not even, we don't even manually create estimates any longer. Really, we, we've set up our ERP system. It pulls the data dynamically from WordBee. So when you have a 20 language project and you have all those line items, you know, say for estimates that the 100% matches, the repetitions, all of that stuff, that's all happening dynamically. Our project managers create estimates in in minutes. So that's something and not ours, uh, which is the case for a lot. You know, you're, you're doing a 20 language project. Maybe there's five line items per per language, it can take a project manager all day to manually enter that data. So though the firms that are struggling with that sort of thing, the administrative side, you know, that's where we can provide a lot of value. That's interesting. And it's a, it's really a gradient, I think, for mergers and acquisitions, because the companies who are struggling with those things would also struggle making an acquisition. So for companies that are listening to this and are, you know, thinking of uh, what, how they would like to scale their business, uh, it's really critical, the stuff that Peter's talking about, because it's like a one-way street here, you know, like uh, uh, an efficient organization in that respect can acquire a less efficient organization, but it can't work the other way around. Sure. And I, and I think, you know, these firms can provide value back to us because obviously, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they're good firms, they have great relationships, but they just never crossed that bridge on technology. And I know we were there at one point. So it's really sort of, you know, looking at getting a company as they're getting ready to make that leap. So we've already made those investments and they're, they're sizable investments and in writing all these integrations. But I, I, you know, I think one of the things that I've been sort of switching gears a little bit, one of the things that I've been most shocked at is I don't know if there's this sort of dramatization, whether it's, you know, these shows like Shark Tank and The Profit and those that are out there, the sort of dramatization of what it takes to invest in a company. But we've seen some really, really inflated numbers in terms of uh, the multipliers for what a company's worth. And I think that's something that I think is an education. And I, I would say, you know, maybe even if a firm is really looking to sell, I, I would encourage them to go get a 
business appraisal. You know, in other words, go get a professional appraisal on what your business is worth. And I don't know where these inflated numbers come from. I, I don't know if it's the TV shows or the popular media, but I hmm. think it's important to get a professional opinion on what your company is worth, maybe even before you meet with a broker, because, you know, if you think of what a broker's goal is, and, and I'm not slighting it, I just a broker's goal is to sell the business for the highest price, because of course that means the highest commission for them. So mm. I think sometimes the brokers are all too accommodating to some of these folks that are looking to sell a business and tell them, you know, in spite of the fact that you have no technology, you have no contracts, you have no real solid relationships with your clients. And by the way, your top client is 70% of your business. Mm. I think you should get seven times earnings. And that's just unheard of. I, I, I I'm I wonder, of, is it though? Like, uh, do you think there's larger companies than Argo that are willing to pay that price? Maybe, but I would say it would have to be with something strategic. Like I wouldn't pay it. I know, yeah. I know if, you know, maybe, I guess you have to look at the cost of a client. Like what does it take to acquire a client? So in other words, if some small firm had a big relationship with say some big pharma that a client really wanted that relationship, they might pay a premium for it. But you know, that really lengthens the return on the investment. And I, I don't I don't know how many of the larger firms would be willing to do that. Now, I think if you had some sort of technology stack or a superstar salesperson or a couple superstar project managers, you know, those might be things that would add to it. But I mean, the multipliers that we've been more accustomed to seeing are, you know, maybe more around two or three times hmm. earnings. Mm -hmm. But we've run into some firms that are looking for as much as seven. Yeah, with, yeah. Because you have to look at the revenues too. I think sometimes when companies look to sell, maybe it's because they need an infusion of cash, and you know they want to get out of the business, but they might be on hard times. Like we we've seen some firms where you know the last five years their sales have done nothing but decline, and yet they're trying to use the numbers from five years ago to sort of use as their price. And you know, again, as the acquirer, I think there's a lot of risk, mm -hmm. and really, really high multiples, I think will make it cost prohibitive for a firm. My opinion on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's so subjective, the multiplier, you know, in the, cause it's the, the formula is the EBITDA, right? The normal one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's like, you have that and then you have the multiplier and it's like, well, it's two or three or four. And those are huge. Uh, that's not very granular. <laughs> um, it makes a huge difference. It does. And I think, again, you know, you had talked about what are some of the things we look at? I mean, you know, gosh, you'd have to look at a trend of the company. You know, is, is revenue growing? Well, perhaps if revenue is growing and they have a strong presence in a geographic market and you really want to have that geographic market, because for us, like one of the things that I'm factoring in as well, is, you know, we'll look at add back. So, of mm -hmm. course, we're going to add back the owner's salary and maybe do we need their office or not? So, you know, will rent go back into it? And, you know, mm -hmm. it, do they have technology costs that you're not going to need to use because you have your, we have our own technology stack? Or, you know, what are some of the things that are going in? And it's interesting in some of the deals we looked at, we've had very significant add backs, which then those are, but you have to remember the ad backs are the investments we make in our technology. So the ad backs are really for us to sort of help as an ROI initiative. I don't know that they necessarily go back into the multiplier, 
So it's really kind of an interesting dynamic. And I'm not sure my view is exactly in line with everybody else's in the industry, but we've looked at firms that have had no ad backs. In other words, they really don't do investments. So there's not big investments in technology. The owner's salary is really in line and it's not that large. And in fact, we'd need to hire some people to handle some of the work that they're doing. So you have to look at really all those things and just figure out what your return on investment is going to be. So, Peter, when we look at like 2017, there's been many acquisitions, big as well as small ones. You know, I guess the biggest one was RWS acquiring Moravia for a cost of 320 million US dollars. Keyword Studios acquired lots of companies. I don't even want to, you know, mention all of them. Is there anyone in particular that you think, you know, you were talking about inflated prices, anyone where you would say this is totally out of range? You know, I'm not sure that I can comment specifically because I, I would imagine that strategically, like, you know, the RWS one, you know, these are companies that yeah, have, I have a fair amount of respect for. Uh, you know, Moravia was uh, built from the ground up and, and I think pursued a similar acquisition strategy. Those that TransPerfect and LionBridge did is, you know, buying up some of these small regional players. And, and again, the only reason I know that is because we had been approached multiple times and, and, you know, really didn't have any interest in it. So I guess I hesitate to comment because I don't know the rationale that they used. Mm. I would imagine it was strategic. I think the big thing is that there's a lot of funding that's out there. I think translation has become very sexy. You know, we we see all these things about all the different wearables and the devices and the cost of translation and Amazon, uh, you know, getting in on the machine translation side. So I think there are a lot of players that want to be in the space. So, you know, I guess, and I, and I also guess at that scale, it's completely different, right? Because the, right. the other thing is when you're looking at these large firms, well, they actually may have some contracts and probably have some government contracts and some things that are a little more concrete, where at the smaller scale, I think it's so based on relationships and what the owner who essentially has usually probably been the sales rep and the lead project manager, and it's a little more tenuous in my mind. Whereas mm -hmm. with these larger transactions, I don't feel like relationships can be the basis as much for the deals that they're doing because they're just such a big machine. So just yeah. my opinion, but I would imagine it'll continue that way. I think there will continue to be consolidation. And I also think that there are a lot of firms that were started around the same time of when we started, but perhaps by folks that were a little bit older, so they're looking to retire. So I think there's going to continue to be a ton of consolidation for the foreseeable mm -hmm. future. Mm -hmm. Do you think like all these really, really big companies like RWS, I mean, of course, they will keep acquiring. Do you think they're going to make it even harder for small LSPs to survive? You reckon they're just going to buy them all? You know, it's interesting, you know, I, I, so in the meetings at Elkis and, you know, my conversations with our other agency owners that I've known over the years, there seems to be some of that fear, but I don't see it because I think a lot of the clients that we attract are those that actually want tighter relationships, tighter partnerships, because for us, at least, and a lot of my colleagues that are smaller in scale, we have the abilities to still customize some things, right? Mm -hmm. So if a client says, well, I really want to be billed on a monthly basis and I want my invoice in this sort of structure, you know, these are things that we can customize and do. Smaller agencies like ours also have longer tenure with their project managers. So 
I think that, you know, one of the complaints that we often get from clients that we've converted, in fact, we converted a very large defense contractor this year from one of the big three. I'm not going to say exactly which one or the defense contractor, but we were able to do it because they said they had no relationship with the project manager. The project manager was being replaced almost every two or three months on the assignment, and mm-hmm. they weren't able to get traction in terms of the preferences on the job. So in my mind, I think there's always going to be a space for the smaller, nimble firm that embraces technology. In other words, that can do some of the things that the big guys do, but still have that personal touch. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah, because trust is so important, you know, especially in translations, because people are sort of at the mercy of their providers. It's not like they can check the work themselves or read it over, give it a once over in a language they don't speak, right? Absolutely. I mean, we've we've been very fortunate. We have incredibly low turnover when it comes to our client base. And I think that that comes from uh, trust and the ability to form a relationship with our management team and their project manager. So for us, those relationships are really important. And I think that's harder to keep as you grow. And it's one of the things that has really been embedded in our acquisition strategy is that we want to make sure that we don't lose those relationships. And and I think that's the real test is, you know, at what point in an agency size does that become tough? You know, does that occur at 10 million, at 20 million, at 30 million? You know, where does that occur where you have a really hard time maintaining those same level of relationships? So we're mm-hmm. going to try to test that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And why why do project managers turn over faster in larger organizations? That'll be that'll be a tough one to solve. I think so. And again, you know, I can only know from relationships and interviews because we've interviewed a fair amount of project managers from the larger ones. And for us, we put a lot of energy into our company culture. And I'm not saying that they necessarily don't, but we put a lot of energy into that. We put a lot of energy into providing good compensation and benefits packages. And again, at our scale, I think it's easier. You know, as we get larger, we're certainly going to be pushing the dynamic on that, you know, whether we can continue to do it. Our goal is certainly to continue to, uh, you know, foster a really good culture and really good compensation. Like we want to make the workplace fun. We certainly work very, very hard. We moved to a new office last year specifically to help foster collaboration. So we have sort of an open office environment, incredibly large. We call it a town hall. It's, you know, sort of our meeting room and lunch room and great conference space and some small private spaces. So if people need privacy, they can disconnect their laptop and go. And that's really sort of the environment we hope to pursue with our acquisitions as well if we end up doing offices in other cities. Cool. Well, any any acquisitions you, uh, you make, they'll be happy to work for you. So that's cool. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I'll have them call you, Robert, for an endorsement then. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, you can fly me out to Chicago and I'll I'll give like a, what would you call that? Like an appraisal of the culture. And, <laughs> That'd be great. Um, You're welcome here anytime. Yeah. <laughs> you just put me up in a, in a nice hotel. And- I'll just stop we in. We can do that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind joining. <laughs> okay, there you go. We'll have the whole team over. That'll be great. No problem at all. <laughs> all right. Well, that's that's a deal then. Um, so what do you do when, because I imagine that you're looking at these different firms and maybe you find a firm that looks good, but offers like hybrid services. Like maybe you have a firm that offers translation services, but that's only half of the services they offer. Maybe then they also do like uh, writing or content services or even like uh 
sometimes they can be bundled with like technical writing services or what do you do when you encounter a firm that you'd like to acquire that offers a different services than what you currently offer or does that happen? You know, this is not in this current effort, but a few years ago, we looked at a firm that actually specialized in transcription as well and foreign language transcription. And that was really interesting to me. Now, now that could be something, you know, going back to that discussion of multipliers. In my mind, that's something strategic that might offer a little bit higher multiple because it's a business that we're not in. They obviously have knowledge on it, on the pricing that'll go and the employees that were involved in that effort. So in my mind, that would be a positive. Now it depends on the service. I would want to make sure that it's somehow complementary to what we do and transcription and subtitling. You know, those are all sort of benefits that are on the periphery of what we do that could also be very strategic. So in my mind, that would be a positive. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, I was just curious. Once upon a time, I, I was uh, running a small agency and we offered a whole bunch of different services. And I thought, well, what would Peter do if he encountered that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it depends. Like I, I would shy away from, you know, it's interesting. So about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, there was a huge push for translation service providers to also provide technical writing. And I thought that one was a little bit astray because, you know, remember, I used to work for a medical device manufacturer and worked very closely with the tech writers. And I just recall what it took to get a tech writer to get up to speed on the knowledge required to write effectively on a topic. I mean, they'd be in the engineer's office all the time asking questions about the device and using the device and, you know, running demo data through it. And it just seemed like there was a pretty large learning curve. So in my mind, that was something that I didn't want to tackle. So we never pursued that as one of our services. And I think discipline is important. And I would want to make sure that it was sort of within a basket of services that fit well. And for me, tech writing, that one I wouldn't probably be as excited about. I'm happy to partner with tech writing firms, but I don't necessarily want it inside of our domain. Yeah, you know, I, I started uh, my career, uh, this would have been like 10 years ago, as a technical writer for Lionbridge, doing exactly that. And I, I think that your analysis is, is right on. It seemed weird. You know, it was just a very strange thing to be working for Lionbridge at that time when, you know, like because they had uh, project managers for the localization in-house there while working for Lionbridge, but in on the premises. Right. Mm -hmm. And then and then there was me and a couple other writers and it just felt super strange. Like, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like we weren't part of uh, any company, (laughs) just the billing, you know. Yeah. And and I think it's tough. And for us, I never want to tackle anything where I think we might disappoint the client. And Hmm. that one is a little bit out of our area of expertise. Like we certainly can offer best practices and things for tech writers to, you Mm -hmm. know, shoot for when providing content that's more translatable or, or more appropriate for translation. Those are all things we're happy to do a little bit of consulting, but we didn't actually want to tackle the writing. And and we even, you know, the, the outsourcing thing that you talk about, we even did have, we, we, we used to work with a very large medical device manufacturer. And at one point we had a couple project managers on site And, you know, it was tough because, yeah, they weren't employees of that company and they weren't necessarily employees of ours because they really weren't part of our culture. They never got to headquarters. They were sort of in this no man's land. And I, I felt for them because I think that was a tough spot to be. 
Peter, so I just have to jump back a little here. You said you would never or, you know, you're not looking into selling Argo, of course. I mean, you're looking into um, acquisitions. So the right moment for you to decide that you want to acquire a company was when you said there's only so much your salespeople can do and you want to scale the company. But what do you think is the right time to decide to sell your company? Well, you know, for me personally, you know, I don't see it. I'm still pretty young. I don't really like to golf. So I, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have a great passion for the business. I, I really enjoy the type of work I do. I love coming here every day. So for me, I would think for me personally, the right time to sell is when I don't love coming here anymore. You know, at that mm -hmm. point where I lose passion for the business or the industry changes in such a way that I really don't feel like we can operate the same way, you know, that would be a signal for me. I would imagine yeah. for others, it might be similar, or maybe they get to a certain age where they say, hey, I don't, you know, really want to work all these hours anymore. I, I want to enjoy some time with family and friends, or they feel like they're at a, and, and I think here's the other value in getting, you know, a professional appraisal of your business is you really understand, well, what is my company worth? Can I retire on that? Because I, I think the worst thing you can do as a company that's trying to sell is come in with some sort of disillusioned price, because I think you'll just be frustrated. You're going to mm -hmm. sign these NDAs, give companies all this information, this personal information about your business and how it's run, and you're going to be frustrated because the acquisition won't come through. I think in my mind, that's an important part of it. It's like financial planning, because yeah. if you own, if you own a company, it's no different than really owning stock in a company. And you might look at, you have these, all these shares of Amazon or Facebook or GE or whatever stocks they are that you have, you're going to evaluate, Hey, I'm going to sell it because I get this gain. In other words, this was my investment. I'm selling it for this premium and this is my gain. How does that fit into my portfolio. I think it has to be the same thing with your company, right? When you, when you mm -hmm. own a company is understanding how it fits into the financial picture. Right. Yeah, hmm. totally. Regarding the multiplier. So do you have like a formula to try to, you know, deduce this ideal multiplier for each business or, or do you just kind of feel it out as you go? So what I've been using is just a simple checklist. Yeah. Does this exist? Does this exist? Does this exist? You know, where is this? Where are these concentrations? Mm -hmm. And I think sort of on the lower end, you also have to think of that, you know, no one's going to sell their company, I would imagine, for less than a multiplier of two. But I would say probably on the top side, I've been looking at three and a half or four mm -hmm. if the company had absolutely everything. Because really, you have to look at, you know, what are we going to need to invest? So if the office is abroad and we don't have a presence there, I'm going to have to get an accountant on the ground. I'm going to have to factor in that myself, my management team, people from my project management team are going to have to fly there a lot mm -hmm. for training, you know, really factoring in what are the costs going to be after acquisition to make this successful. So those are all things that would penalize that multiplier. So I, I don't have a specific formula. I've just been using this checklist mm -hmm. and sort of notching that multiplier either up or down. Yeah, the reason I ask is because it would be really cool to uh, have a sort of a calculator online, like you could publish a little calculator for businesses that are trying to figure out what their multiplier should be. Um, you know, what's interesting in, in translations. Is that, yeah. Yes, exactly. That's the trick in translation, because you know our industry is so 
it's such a niche industry, right? There's, it's, there's not a lot of content or data out there. I, I've done a ton of research and I've engaged. I'm part of a business group or I was part of a business group called Vistage for many mm-hmm. years. And I still talk to my mentor and some of my old members and uh, they've introduced me to some M&A firms and I've asked a lot of questions and mm-hmm. said, you know, where's it, where's the empirical data on these transactions? And it's, it, it's tough to find. Mm-hmm. I would imagine someone like a common sense advisory or one of those groups might have some data, but I, I haven't approached them yet. But um, hmm. I would imagine there's some data out there, but I, I, it's tough to find. There are calculators. There are some M&A firms out there that have calculators where you can put in, you know, the EBITDA and what type of industry they're in. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is always you have to choose professional services, but then you're in the category of like architects and attorneys and accountants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to be a translation specific calculator so you can get some of that information like uh, how long have you been working with your top 10 customers? Like all all the things you mentioned uh, stuck into the calculator. Well, that's a cool idea. That'd be that, a cool yeah. project. Hopefully, Little... some of the uh, translation M and A firms are out there are listening, and they'll uh, they'll put one out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, well... we we found some ideas for some people to carry out. That would be great. Or even like the ATA or, you know, one of the associations or like the company division of the ATA or one of those folks who would be nice for them to mm. maybe look into that and see. Because I, I think that would be really good because it is tough. I, I mean, and I get it and I, I never want to offend anyone, but in talking to some agency owners and I, the toughest conversation to have is to say, you know, I'm glad you feel your company is worth X, but here are the reasons why I don't think it's worth X. That's a miserable conversation to have because you're really injuring someone's pride. And it would be great if there's a resource that you could point to and say, hey, you should really go look at this calculator. And I think it'll help you with understanding the valuation. Yeah, like a neutral party there that's (laughs) just (laughs) spitting out numbers to calibrate everyone. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like you mentioned Shark Tank earlier, and it's like, well... I mean, maybe people think, well, this business is ready to take off, you know, like it says all this uh, promise and potential and, uh, but, you know, like the businesses on Shark Tank or the, you know, the people that have these like 40X valuations or whatever, or, or are highly valued and they actually don't make any money are in totally different fields. You know, a lot of that stuff's like B2C or it's uh, some app for doing something, app for kids, uh, (laughs) streaming videos or whatever. You hit it right on the head. I mean, you know, I think people love to look at, you know, the stories of the Snapchats of the world and sort of these very viral apps that sold for ridiculous multiples. And that's just not our space. <laughs> it, it really, it really isn't our space. Now, you, you've seen there's been some VC funding for companies that are trying to do things that are somewhat sexy. And I mean, I, and I can tell you a story. We, gosh, a few years back, we had an initiative that didn't go that well. It was called Argo MT. And what we had done is we took our TMS platform and machine translation engine and the differentiator we had versus Google Translate is that we we could take a formatted document. So you could upload a PowerPoint file and it would come back with formatting because we were running it through the TMS and we were charging out of something ridiculous, two or three cents per word or something. And we had all sorts of caveats. This is machine translation. It's not appropriate for the market, but we'll retain formatting. Here it is. It's for gisting, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it didn't do terribly well because the idea of free translation is that most people want it for free, that like two cents is too much or three cents is too much. So while that initiative was a bit of a failure, actually it's probably about a decade ago, that initiative was 
a failure. The processing technology that we got in terms of handling jobs and creating estimates in real time, we ended up using in our core business. But the point of my story there was there's not a lot of places where translation service providers can be as sexy as the 40x multiplier. I, I don't see it. I may, I, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see it. <laughs> maybe it takes a couple more years. We'll get there. <laughs> well, I think the wearables, like people are all super interested in the wearables, right? You know, the, the Google earbuds and these sort of things, like maybe that sort of thing will catch fire. You know, there's been a sort of a lot of press about the quality of that stuff, but I suppose that's, that's for your machine translation show when you do that one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, suppose. Yeah. Do you have like a deadline? I mean, you mentioned you want to require three companies ideally in five years. Have you set yourself any deadlines? We absolutely want to get a deal done this year for our first one. We hope to learn. You know, we understand there's going to be some bru bruises and some things we're going to learn, some, some things that went well, some things that went poorly. And we want to sort of push that into a formula and then hopefully do better acquisitions within that five-year time period. So we definitely want to get one done this year. Okay. Well, it's your first one. I mean, you know, it's a process of learning, right? Mm -hmm. You're gonna, I'm sure it's going to get done faster in the future. I hope so. I hope we're smart enough to learn from the process. And, you know, because sometimes I think what happens too is like emotions get in, like we've met some owners that have been really, really nice and you sort of let emotions enter into it. So it's tough. I hope we do well on our first one and uh, certainly happy to report back to you guys and let you know how it goes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> We'd love to hear about that. Sure. Maybe, you know, who knows, maybe we're doing another one after your acquisition. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, the before and after shows. Um, well, maybe you'll get an acquisition out of the show. Video. Thankfully, it won't be video, so you won't see all the bruises and the, the, <laughs> the, the damage. That's No, I'm teasing. Well, th thank you, Robert. Yes, hopefully someone hears this and, and approaches us. That would be phenomenal. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So, um, cool. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, yes, this was really a fun discussion. Um, you guys had some great questions and great viewpoints. And um, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks yeah, so much for bet. joining us today. And thanks for being so open about your, your process and what you're going through. Yeah, it, not everybody's open like that. You know, a lot of people don't want anyone to know what they're up to. So I think that we really appreciate that. My pleasure. I think that goes with my Italian heritage. You know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So it, uh, this is my default position. This is pretty much how I work. <laughs> awesome. That's a, great, that's a great position. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks cool. so much, Peter. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks. And uh, we'll send you like a helmet, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll mail you, send you a helmet and some, some a shield and uh some gear perfect i, I think uh hopefully i'll come back and tell you that i didn't have to use it but uh i'll look forward to coming <laughs> back and reporting to you and let you know how things go so thank you again for inviting me cool all right thank you thanks, thanks.